you're a student, you are dismissed to go with Mr. Larry, uh, Mr. Nick and Miss Ivy, and I think that's it. Good morning. I will add my welcome to Christ Community Church and my thankfulness that you're here with us today. And I'll also say Happy Mother's Day. My mom is in Colorado with my two sisters. And so um, I hope they're having fun. Uh, glad you're here with us today. You've got a copy of the scriptures. I wish you would turn to Luke chapter 18. Um, Luke chapter 18. Luke's the third gospel, third book in the New Testament. Written by a medical doctor, as far as we know. And uh, he was a personal friend and fellow missionary with the Apostle Paul. And so uh, he decided to write uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts to give uh, the early Christians throughout the Roman Empire. Here, let me help you, Larry. Let's get this all together. It's new microphone day. I'm just ruining your whole thing. You really are. You, you, uh, you're a real... Is that better? Yes, that's better. I want okay. it in front of your face, in front okay. of your mouth. Okay. But got it. Oh, I have to touch in your mouth. Good okay. grief. What have I done? Yes, what have I done? So, uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, sir. Bless you. Um, anyway, I've never in my life had such difficult... There we go. Um, um, I don't know what I was saying, but just anyway, Luke Luke uh, gives us an account. He's actually writing to a, a fella, a specific fella named Theopolis. And he gives an account of what took place during the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. And um, one of the things that he shares, one of the accounts that he shares, is this okay? Uh, is... Uh, it's an account of Jesus telling a, a story, a parable, about two men that went into the temple one day of, uh, in Jerusalem. Um, I find it very significant that Jesus tells his parable immediately after he told another parable. And the first parable he told, we see in Luke chapter 18, the first, what is it, uh, eight verses about this widow, little Jewish widow lady, who needed some help. She was being wronged. She was being mistreated. Uh, and she needed help. And rather than just accepting it or putting up with it, she goes to the judge and says, Hey, I need some help. I'm being treated wrong and I need you to help me. Jesus talks about how the judge didn't care about her or anybody else but at the end of the day because she came and acknowledged her need and asked for help very important she came she acknowledged her need and she asked for help the judge said whoo lord i'm tired of you banging on my door or sending me texts and emails uh, i'm gonna help you just to get you out of my hair and so he teaches that parable about prayer and then he follows that up with this story. Uh, Luke 8, two men that go to the temple. Okay, so let me read it to you real quickly. Uh, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. says, Jesus told a parable to, two peop uh, uh, to people who had great confidence in their own righteousness. That's the whole bailiwick. Okay, he's talking to people, he's teaching a group of people who have great confidence in their own righteousness, in how they see themselves. They see themselves as very good people. Law-abiding, rule-following, religious, practicing Nice, kind, helpful people. 
Very important. Okay? Jesus told a parable to people who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Okay? So here's the parable. Two men went to the temple to pray. A Pharisee and a despised publican. The Pharisee stood by himself praying. There's nothing wrong with that translation. It can be translated, the Pharisee stood and prayed to himself. That's another way. In fact, some of you might have translations. He was talking to himself. Wasn't even talking to God. Okay? Pharisee stood by himself praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, sinners, or better, ungodly, people that are ungodly, and adulterers. Certainly not like that publican over there. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the publican stood off to the side and wouldn't even look to heaven. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this is Jesus talking now. This isn't Larry talking. This isn't Billy Graham talking. This isn't uh, whoever you think so. Well, those two people are really, really brilliant. So I don't know if anybody any smarter than those two. But uh, anyway, uh, this is the Lord Jesus talking. Uh, He said, I tell you, this man, the publican, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Um. Let me make two quick observations before we look at this in a little more detail. First one is this, and I've already sort of let the cat out of the bag on this one. I find it very significant that this parable about these two men that went to the temple to pray. This parable follows an earlier parable about a lady who came to a judge. She came She acknowledged her need and she asked for help. Um, Two men went to the temple to pray. What did the rich, uh, what did the tax, Lord, what did the Pharisee, what did the Pharisee ask God for? Nothing. Nothing. He didn't need anything. How you doing, Pharisee? I'm good. How'd your week go? Good. How'd you do on the battle with sin? Great. How you doing in all your relationships? They're lucky to have me. I'm on top of my game. I'm good. Now, I don't think he necessarily was being facetious or, or era. I think he genuinely viewed his life the way you do and the way I do. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing with your battles with sin? Good. How are you doing with, your, with the relationship? Good. I think that Jesus is talking about me. I'm good. Not perfect. We all have to throw that in. You know. But basically when I. The person that I shave in the morning. I see him as a basically good person. And I bet you do too. Jesus tells the parable. The earlier parable about a lady. Who approached an authority because she wasn't good. She was in need. 
She saw her life very differently. I need help. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and I'm going to ask for help. One of the two men in this story, he came to the temple because he needed help. And he asked for help. Other observation that I noticed just right out of the gate was how my view of myself affects my view of others. When I view myself as good, I got a good life, I've made my life good. I've done good. I've followed the rules. I've worked hard. I've lifted myself up by my bootstraps. I've capitalized on opportunities. I've not wronged people, uh, uh, you know, in overt, horrendous ways. I've basically, when I view, how I view people, will have a, how I view myself, I'm sorry, how I view myself will have a profound impact upon how I view other people. How I view myself will have an, a profound impact upon how I view the people down at the border between the United States and Mexico. How I view myself will have a profound impact upon how I view other people when they fail miserably. How I view myself will have a profound impact. Notice the Pharisee. How did he view himself? Great. I'm doing great. I'm good. How did he view the people that he saw around him? Oh. Oh. God, thank you that I'm not like her. God, I work harder than these other people. I follow the rules better than other people. My wife's lucky, luckier to have me than other people. My children are lucky. Those, those ingrates, they ought to be grateful for how I bless them. How I view myself in need of help and grace or I'm good. I don't need anything. It's going to affect how I view other people. So let me real quickly, let's run through this. Who's Jesus telling this parable about? Well, let me break it down. Two people, Pharisee and a tax collector. Publican, tax collector, synonymous words in the Bible, just different uh, uh, genres, different ages when they would use the word publican versus the word tax collector. Same occupation. A Pharisee. Pharisees lived throughout the promised land. They lived in, there were Pharisees that lived in almost every community in Israel uh, during the time of Jesus versus the Sadducees who lived almost exclusively in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem. Um, Pharisees operated primarily out of the synagogues that would have been scattered throughout Israel. Those were places that Jewish people, every town that had more than 10 families had a synagogue. And the Pharisees operated out of these synagogues they, they, these were places where the Bible was taught, where people pr came for prayer, and where people gathered for spiritual community. The Sadducees, in contrast, they ministered in the temple. They, they didn't really, the Bible, the Old Testament was not a big deal to the Sadducees. What they focused on was the sacrificial system. Everybody needed to come to the temple at least three times a year, if not five. And they needed to buy and offer sacrifices. That was their, that, that's the, if you're wondering, what's the difference in a Sadducee and a Pharisee? The Sadducees focused on the temple and sacrifices. The Pharisees focused on teaching and following the Old Testament laws. And they worked out among the people of Israel. Um, the Pharisees added a lot of rules 
to what the Bible taught. Uh, they would say that the rules that they added to the Bible were as authoritative as the, literally the things that Moses wrote. And we'll talk about that another time. The Pharisees hated Rome. They hated the Romans. And that made them very popular with the people. Pharisees among the general populace of Israel in Jesus' day, they were, they were pretty popular. And one of the reasons they were is that they were out among the people. Uh, they taught them the word of God to some degree. And they, uh, they hated the Romans like the average people of Israel did. Uh, the Sadducees, they said, get, come along, get along. I'll scratch your back. If you scratch mine, y'all are in charge. So we're going to fall in line and cooperate. That was the difference there. And the, the average Jewish people of Israel did not view the Sadducees with, with favor because of that. Um, the, fact, the, the Pharisees would have been um, there. The negative that when people wrote about the Pharisees, things that we know that they wrote about, they would have said that while they were relatively popular and they were, had a good reputation, they tried to follow the rules that they believed the Bible taught. At the same time, they're they, they were known for being critical. They were known for being judgmental. They were known for being harsh. That was their reputation. Uh, of all the people that Jesus criticized, Jesus, when you see Jesus criticizing people, um, he did criticize other people. But 95% of Jesus' criticism was toward the Pharisees. 90, over, overwhelming. Yes, he criticized Herod. Yes, he criticized the Sadducees a few times. Yes, he criticized um, other people a few times. But basically, the people he criticized the most overwhelmingly were the Pharisees. And he criticized them because he, these are the things he said. You love money. You, you're greedy. You have an attitude of superiority. You won't admit that you have need. You won't admit that you fail. You won't admit that you sin. Those were the basic criticisms that Jesus had of the Pharisees. For what it's worth. Uh, the tax collector, the publican. Um, when Rome conquered a land, and Rome conquered everybody's land in this day, uh, when Rome conquered a land, they left behind. The army would come in, conquer everybody, and then they would move on. And who they left behind were two people. Soldiers, to make sure everybody obeyed the laws, and tax collectors, make sure everybody gave Rome their share. And so tax collectors would have uh, been, they would have been Roman representatives. The difference in the soldiers and the tax collectors was simply that the soldiers were Italian. They were Roman. The tax collectors were of the nationality of the people that had been conquered. So in this case, they were Jewish. And if you could get in your mind uh, uh, somebody that would have been a Nazi sympathizer uh, during World War II, and they lived in your community in America. That would have been the attitude of the, of the people of Israel toward tax collectors in Jesus' day. Um, they were seen as traitors. Uh, they, were, they were hated. They were ostracized. They were not allowed to be a part of Jewish religious life or Jewish communal life in any way. Um, they were... Uh, in charge of tolls, tariffs, and taxes. Okay, so you won't forget that. They, were all, they always had their hand in your pocket. Anything you transported, anything you exported or imported, and anything, your income and your business sales, they taxed everything. And Rome wanted a certain percentage and they were notorious for charging a higher percentage. And whatever they got above the Roman percentage, it was theirs. And so they were notorious for being crooked and dishonest. 
um, they were normally very wealthy. They that when even Jesus said uh, would make comments like, uh, "Do you do this?" Uh, even the tax collectors do that, or, or don't you do this? Don't you uh, whatever it would be? Don't he? Even Jesus used the term tax collector as synonymous with the lowest rung of society. And if Jesus did it, trust me, the rest of the Jewish population did it for sure. Um, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, he was the most famous tax collector. Okay? Alright, so um, this Pharisee would have hated this tax collector and would have viewed him with great disdain. So let me just stop and let me ask you a question. Who is it in your life, this is a rhetorical question, who is it in your life that you feel superior to? Who is it that you look down on? People that aren't, if you're political, if you're a Republican, you look down on people that aren't. If you're a Democrat, you look down on people that aren't. Could be national. If you're not a red, white, and blue, flag-waving, red-blooded, George Washington uh, uh, nephew uh, American, you look down on everybody else that's not. Could, it could relate to wealth. You look down on people who have wealth, you look down on people that don't have wealth. Could be appearance. Pretty people have a problem with people that aren't pretty. You don't normally see models hanging out with uglies. Right? Right? Education. You look down on people that have education, you look down on people that don't have education. Work ethic. In my family, the lowest, we didn't really care about tax collectors. What we cared about in my home growing up was that you worked hard. And if you didn't work hard, you were the lowest form of life. That was, that was who you looked down on. I, I grew up in a home where we drive down the road, you see somebody's not working hard. Isn't that pitiful? Isn't that pitiful? That was mine. Um, family. If you don't have a certain family model you would look down on people that, that whose family model wouldn't reflect yours people that have certain types of failure in their in their past that'll never happen to us certain moral issues people that practice certain moral or the lack thereof uh, we look down on people that do or don't practice certain moral behavior. Certain beliefs. Theological beliefs, biblical beliefs, cultural beliefs, values. We look down on people that have stark disagreement in their lives related to things that we believe or they believe. Religious differences. We look down on people that maybe practice other religions. Who is it in my life, who is it in your life that we think we're superior to? That we would look down on? One of Jesus' most unique and controversial traits was his incredible ability to value and accept people that the general society marginalized or ostracized. Unbelievable how Jesus would give attention and respect and time and help and friendship to people that nobody else in his society would give that to. Lepers, demon-possessed, Adulterers, prostitutes, 
children, women, the poor, soldiers, Roman officials, Samaritans, foreigners. Uh, The very first criticism that Jesus ever encountered by others and the most common and continual criticism that Jesus encountered throughout his three and a half years of ministry was the criticism of you hang out with people that you shouldn't hang out with. You embrace and associate with people that respectable, good Jews don't hang out with. Why do you do that? This this is said repeatedly in all four Gospels. Let me just give you one example. In Mark 2, uh, it says, Levi, Matthew, invited Jesus and the other disciples to his home for dinner along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Sinners of all kinds. Jesus' followers included many people like that. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked Jesus' disciples, Why does your master eat with such wicked scum? That was the first criticism Jesus ever encountered, and it was continually leveled against him throughout his three and a half years. I would suggest that when Jesus called Matthew, the writer of the first gospel in the New Testament, Matthew was a tax collector. He was one of these dudes. When Jesus called Matthew to be one of the apostles, I would suggest to you that that was religious and political suicide. It would literally be like in our culture for Bernie Sanders to invite Donald Trump to be a guest speaker at one of his rallies. Or for Donald Trump to invite Mr. and Mrs. Clinton to one of his rallies as an honored guest. People would go, what are you doing? That's crazy. That is political suicide. That is literally what Jesus did when he asked Matthew to be one of his disciples. One of his, not just a disciple, an apostle. Jesus possessed the unique ability to not only endure people that were wouldn't just endure them you know, <laughs> the radar he didn't just endure them you know you know there's a lot of times where you'll well I'll give you a great example I go down once a quarter to Calvary Rescue Mission and I serve food to some men and I teach them the Bible and I love doing it I really do I love doing it you know, one of the things that I love about it, and I'm, I'm just being as honest with you as I know how. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to be honest with you. You know one of the things that I love about that? I go home at the end. I go home. I love going down there. I'm good with enduring their blathering and their lies and their stories and their fabrications and their asking and their uh, all the I, I, I endure it for two hours then I go home Jesus was unbelievably remarkable in his ability to not just endure these people but he seemed to value them and to actually enjoy spending time with them. Um, Go back and look at the story with me for just a second. I believe this story could have very easily been true. Not just a parable. It could have been like many of Jesus' parables. It was a parable because it had a, a point to it. But it was based upon what was happening all around. 
Uh, I believe that maybe one of Ma- uh, that these people like Zacchaeus and Matthew, they normally had other people like, like uh, Doug. You, you're in a, a CPA. You have a tax company. But you probably at, at times have ha- hired other tax people to work for you. Okay? So, same exact thing. Ma- uh, Matthew or Zacchaeus had a, had a tax business and they hired other people to work for them and collect taxes from the Jewish people. And all of a sudden, Matthew or Zacchaeus meets Jesus and their life has changed. For years, this guy's been working for Matthew or Zacchaeus, seeing the scams, seeing the abuse, seeing the greed, seeing the dishonesty, seeing the, the harshness toward these people when they couldn't pay their taxes. And all of a sudden... This guy he's been working for, his whole life's different. And he all of a sudden he sees compassion and honesty and honor. He starts seeing Matthew or Zacchaeus treating these people with dignity and honor and kindness. What the Sam Hill's going on? This isn't the guy I've been working for for years. He starts listening to this guy, this man that that Zacchaeus or Matthew have been listening to and been watching for a little while Matthew or Zacchaeus' life. And over time, it starts bothering this fellow. We don't know his name. It starts bothering him. He can't sleep at night. One day, he gets so bothered and so convicted and so desperate that he decides, I need, some, I need some hope and I need some help. And so he, he went to the temple at, a, at a, one of the four times when it's a time of prayer, when good Jewish uh, people would go to the temple and pray. And the crowd's big and he, he goes into the, the western uh, gate of the temple and as he does, the crowd sort of sweeps him along. I mean, this is a busy, big place. And the crowd pushes him along and he goes through the western gate, goes through the, 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 the courtyard of the Gentiles, gets pushed on further through the courtyard of the women. And danged if he doesn't wind up getting pushed into the courtyard of the men where the men gathered to pray, where the godly men of Israel gathered to pray. And all of a sudden, man, he feels very uncomfortable, very ashamed, very unfamiliar. He's never, he's never been allowed in this place before. But maybe because of the crowd, he, he, they don't notice him. And he looks around and goes, oh my gosh. And so he immediately goes all the way over and stands on the perimeter. Maybe behind one of those big columns in Herod's temple. And all we know... We don't know that he understood. What about Jesus' miracles? What, what, do you, what do you believe about Jesus' deity? What do you believe about his virgin birth? What do you believe about Jesus' view of, of the scriptures? All we know is that this guy went into the, the only place where he thought he might find God. And the only thing that he knew to do was to look. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He just looked down at the ground, probably tears wetting the the marble floor around his feet. And all he knew to say is, God, I know I'm a, I I have made a mess of my life. Would you please show me mercy? You know what else to do? At the same time, This Pharisee, he came to the temple these four times a day. Every day, all four times. He walks into the same courtyard of the men, goes right to the middle. I mean, front and center. He's very comfortable, very familiar, very proud of how he's lived his life. Dotted every I, crossed every T, followed every rule. He's serving God with all of his heart. And the Bible says that he stood. But what I find funny is he doesn't look up in worship. He doesn't look down in shame or need. 
He looks around. God, thank you. Thank you, God. Probably loud enough for everybody to hear. God, thank you that I'm not like other people. That aren't as faithful and devoted and honest and hardworking. That haven't lifted themselves up by their bootstraps. That haven't made as much of their lives. Who haven't been such a blessing to everybody in, the, in their lives and basically everybody on the planet. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Thank you that I'm not like a, a robber or an ungodly person or an adulterer. Thank you, God, that I'm especially not like that tax collector over there, a traitor, a traitor to our society. Thank you, God. God, I'd, I'd, I fast twice a week. The, law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, only said you had to fast once a year. I fast twice a week. John, you give 6%, I give 10 You go to church once a week, I go twice. Thank you, God, that I... God, look at my life. Look at how good I'm doing. The story ends, in my opinion, with one of the saddest things in the world. It says two men went into the temple to pray. And two men left the temple. One man left. And he left with mercy. He left with a relationship with God. He left with God looking at him with favor. He left gaining what he wanted, what he asked for, what he acknowledged he needed. And the other man left too, exactly the way he came. I want to give you three observations, three things I want you to take home. Number one is this. I believe that this story that Jesus shares is a warning to me and maybe to you about the danger of comparing ourselves to others. Because you know what I've discovered? I can always find somebody that is a bigger rat than me to compare my life to. I can always find somebody with worse behavior, worse choices, worse past, worse, worse lives. I can always find somebody that I can compare myself to that's worse than me. Problem with that is only God knows my life. Only God knows how I was reared or not reared. Only God knows the opportunities that I've been given throughout life or the lack thereof. Only God knows the challenges that I've faced or the lack of challenges that I've had to face. Only God knows how I got to the place that I am today. You don't know. And I've come to the conclusion about me, and I don't know that about you. And I've come to the conclusion that God doesn't care what, near as much about where I am on the journey that He's called me to As he is concerned about where I started. You know, if we're both trying to get to Nashville, Fred, me and you trying to get to Nashville, and I start in Jackson, Tennessee, and you start in Meridian, Mississippi, it might look like I'm way ahead. But I didn't start in Meridian. Depends on where we start. Depends on the parents you had. Depends on the country you were born in. There's lots of factors that determine who you are and where you are and how you've done. There's a lot of factors. Only God knows the factors that have determined who you are. And for me, bless you, to compare myself to... I think one of Jesus' points is, 
How absurd that you would even try to compare yourself to somebody else. Because you don't know their journey. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, Pay attention to your own work. And then you'll get the satisfaction of a job well done when you die. And you won't need to compare yourself to other people. For we are each responsible for our own opportunities and our own behavior. You know, one of the things that hit me like a ton of bricks years ago. The Bible says that every one of us is going to stand before God. Do you know we're not going to stand in a crowd? Becky, it's going to be you and God. But I went to church more than Austin. I treated my wife better than you did treat your wife. I was a better parent than you were a parent. I, I was more honest with my... There won't be a soul when I stand before God. Just me and God. I will not get to use anybody else's life as a standard that I could rise above or excuse from below. It'll just be me and God. And the standard that every one of us will have to live by is the standard of the life of the Lord Jesus. It's the only standard. I can find me somebody that I'm better than. I can find somebody that I'm better than until I stand beside Jesus. And then all of a sudden, that's a... Who forgives like Jesus? Who loves like Jesus? Who gives like Jesus? Who accepts like Jesus? Who defends like Jesus? Who protects like Jesus? Who raises up others like Jesus? Who is faithful to the calling and plan and purposes of God like Jesus? Who's willing to die for others like Jesus? That's the standard. That's the standard. Number two. Do I see Do I see that no matter how well manicured I have made my life Do I see how far I need to go I can manicure my yard. I can manicure my life. Especially in front of others. I said, Tommy reminded me of something I said years ago. The greatest battle and the greatest enemy in my life is not my unrighteousness, but my self-righteousness. God can deal with unrighteousness. The cross can deal with unrighteousness. The cross can't deal with self-righteousness. Because the self-righteousness simply says, No thank you. I'm good. I got it. Thanks for offering God. No thank you. God cannot deal with self-righteousness. My greatest danger and my greatest battle and my greatest enemy is allowing to develop in my life an attitude that I don't need God's help every day. It might be your greatest enemy in battle too. You might say, well, I don't, I don't think I really do a lot wrong. I'm not aware of 
You know, the Pharisee gave us a good list, didn't he? God, thank you that I'm not like a robber. I've never robbed a liquor store. I've never stolen money out of Kim's purse. Do I rob people's? Do I rob people of their reputation through slander and gossip? Do I rob my wife of joy by being harsh and mean-spirited and irritable to order? Do I rob people of the help that God wanted me to give them? Do I rob people of dignity, respect? Do I, rob, do I steal people's peace? Do I rob people of faith by the way I live? Oh, you're a Christian, are you? I was thinking about becoming a Christian. Never mind. If that's what it, if that's what it looks like, never mind. See, I can steal other people's faith. You can too. A sinner. God, thank you that I'm not like other, like sinners. Sinners are just people that say no to God. A fool has said in his heart, no. No, you can translate it. A fool has said in his heart. But you can equally translate that in the Hebrew language. A fool has said in his heart, to God, no. Are my thoughts godless? My reactions? My words? How quickly I get angry? My selfishness? My unwillingness to forgive? My goals and desires? Could I honestly say, man, I think my desires and goals, my words, my attitudes... The, how quickly uh, I forgive, how, how, how patient I am. That basically reflects who God is. Is that right? Thank you, God, that I'm not like an adulterer. You know what an adulterer is? A person who wants or takes what belongs to somebody else. And I'll end with this. That man, that tax collector, he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God said, and Jesus said, that man left the temple that day just about. I just want y'all to know that what God offers us is mercy. I want to say one more time. What God offers you and me is mercy. Mercy and more mercy. We should declare daily to people we love and know or should I say people we know and love, and people we don't know and don't love, that the only thing that God offers to His children, the only thing that God is offering you in 2019, every day of this year, is mercy. Do you realize that? That what God is offering you and what God is offering me is mercy. Mercy is the foundation of the gospel. Mercy is what separates Christianity from all other religions. Find me another religion. Text me or email me or call me when you go home and Google or research or study. Find me another religion that has as its foundational basis the offering of mercy. Let me know what religion that is. That's what Christianity offers. He offers mercy. God's favor. God's blessing. God's love. It's offered 
via mercy. Not, we, don't not, we do not operate by good chips. That if I work hard enough, say no hard enough, say yes hard enough, do enough good, I'll gather enough good chips to outweigh the bad chips. That is not what Christianity offers. That's not what God, the God of the Bible offers. The God of the Bible says, I've got an ocean. I've got a galaxy of good chips that I have created. I'd like to just share them with you. Because I like you. I just think you're great. Just open up your hands and I'll fill your arms full. That's what God offers us. We believe that we're saved by mercy. Ephesians 2 says that God is so rich in mercy and He's loved us so much that even though we were dead in our sins, He gave us life when He raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 9 says that our salvation does not depend upon human desire and effort, but on God's mercy. And 1 Peter 1 says, It is by God's great mercy that we have been born again. God offers you and God offers me salvation based upon mercy. We believe that God relates to us every day by mercy. That's the only way God knows how to relate to us. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, We pray daily that we will receive mercy from God. Romans 5 says, When my sin abounds... God's grace and mercy abounds even more. And Hebrews chapter 4 says, Let us boldly draw near to God's throne of grace that we may receive mercy. Everything that enters our life need for mercy. We believe that everything that enters our lives as children of God Everything, every good thing, every bad thing, every curse, every blessing, everything that enters your life, if you're a child of God, it is a means through which God gives you mercy. All of life's pleasures, all of life's pain, they flow out of the heart and from the hands of a God that is offering mercy. James chapter 5 says, Remember Job and how the Lord was kind to him and showed him compassion and mercy. It didn't look like compassion or mercy, did it? But James says, it was mercy. We believe that even our sin and our rebellion are means through which God gives us mercy. I was reading today, in my devotion, just this morning, early this morning, how the people of Israel said, we, we, we're not real comfortable with God being our king. We, we want a king like all the nations around us. And Samuel goes, oh, I beg you don't do that. Let God be your king. Let God be your king. Don't, don't, don't request a human king. And the people said, no, we want a human king. What a... What a what a selfish, sinful, fear-based, foolish request. You think that derailed God from being a God of mercy? God said, okay. I'll ultimately, I'll give you David. Even in your sinful request, your sinful choices, your stubborn, hard-headed, foolish way of looking at things and living life, I'll still... The cross. I'll send my son to show you how much I love you. And how do we respond? Kill him! God says, that's okay. I'll even use that to show you mercy. You can't screw your life up so bad. You can't do anything so bad that I can't turn it around and use it as a tool to show you mercy. And we believe that when Jesus comes back. I was read a bumper sticker the other day. And I'm so sorry. Forgive me for being off color. But I read a bumper sticker not too long ago. That said Jesus is coming back. And when he comes he's madder than hell. Do you know that's a lie? That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus is coming back. But you know what he's going to come back with? Armloads of mercy. 
That's, that's what Jesus is coming back with. In uh, Jude chapter 1 it says, We are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Why did you come to church today? Duty? Habit? Social relationships? Needed some credit? I remember when I was a teenager, I'd go out and live wrong, really wrong on Saturday nights. Me and my buddies, and we all would go to the, well, I don't say what church, but we would all go to church on Sunday morning, and we all tried to usher, <laughs> uh, 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 hand out the bulletins and do the offering plate, uh, because the worse we lived Saturday night, the more we needed credits on Sunday morning. Why'd you come to church this morning? That publican came to church because he realized what maybe a lot of us don't. When I compare my life to Jesus and when I consider what God has blessed me with, I know I've fallen short and what I need is mercy. I need mercy. And the funny thing about people that realize that they need mercy and realize that God has given them mercy, they seem to me a lot more willing to show mercy to others. People that have realized their need of mercy and they realize that they're the beneficiaries of mercy. Somehow it takes the edge off of them. They're not so hard and cold and harsh. Their corners aren't quite so sharp. Why'd you come today? I don't know why you came. But I can tell you this. The Savior that we're trying to honor and worship and talk about today what he's offering you and what he's offering me is mercy. Um, Beck, you and Gail come up here and help me real quick. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Who is invited? You know, that we call this the Lord's Supper, and that's because he's, it's his supper. It's not Christ Community Church's supper. It's not my supper. It's not your supper. It's, it's Christ's supper. It's the Lord's Supper. He said, when you gather together, I want you to take bread and wine, and I want you to eat and drink and remember the offering of my body and the shedding of my blood so that you could experience God's mercy. Who, who is invited to partake of the Lord's Supper? The person that prayed the prayer that that tax collector prayed. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you prayed that prayer? Maybe you use different words. That's, the words are not important. The words are not, the specific words are not what's really important. It's your attitude. I remember when I realized how badly I needed a Savior. And I realized that God sent His Son to be that Savior. And I asked Him to come into my life and forgive me and save me. That's what Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what that means. If you prayed that prayer, if that's been the, the, the cry of your heart, the desire of your heart, if you remember the day when you asked for forgiveness, you asked for, for, for mercy, and you're invited, I invite you to come and eat bread and drink juice which is yellow or wine that's purple. And remember and rejoice 
thank Him. And rejoice that you are the beneficiary of God's mercy. Okay? If you'd like prayer, there'll be people on my right and my left who would love to pray for you. Please go and let them pray. Please, they would love to.